Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word through the process that the scripture refers to as inspiration. You have breathed out your word through the human agents of the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, uh, guaranteeing that what they wrote was without error. The word of God, therefore, is the authoritative uh, revelation from you to us. And it is that which gives us a framework for understanding all things related to our life and ultimately to understand our, your plans and purposes in our lives that we may live to glorify you. Father, we pray as we study your word this morning that it would give us a greater insight not only into your plans and purposes but into who we are and the obstacles and challenges we face in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen question I want you to think about this morning is what is the greatest enemy that you have in your spiritual life? Now, some of you are going to come up with fairly close answers to that. Some of you are going to come up with broad answers. Some of you may come up with a few little narrow, specific answers. But it's a, it's a question that we should ponder uh, more frequently than we do in terms of just simple self-evaluation and our own spiritual advance and spiritual growth. This morning, we are going to be studying a chapter in the Bible that talks about one of the, arguably one of the most bizarre little episodes that we have in the Scripture. It is uh, something that is quite, uh, uh, quite unusual, and it is one of those episodes that sort of uh, peels back the curtain of material uh, empiricism that we have, where, in, in other words, just the things that we can see and touch and feel and how we experience reality to let us see the spiritual realities that are going on behind the scenes at the, at, at the throne of God. And because of the nature of what goes on here, this is one of those passages that we can, uh, on one hand, have a little fun with, and on the other hand, it's a passage that uh, 
can be quite challenging if we stop and really think about some of the dynamics that are going on within this particular uh, this particular chapter. Uh, what we'll see here is an episode that ends in the death of Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom in Israel, and what's involved in these circumstances in this final battle. We're in 1 Kings chapter 22, if you want to, want to uh, turn there. And this is the last chapter, last major event we will really look at. We're not going to quite finish the chapter today because it closes out with a couple of other uh, little issues, but we will, this is the major last major event we'll look at. And as we go through this, we see the thinking of Ahab during as he prepares for this last battle. And as I pointed out a minute ago, there's, there's an opportunity here to have a little fun with the episode because uh, it, there's a humor here that, that the Holy Spirit clearly intended to get across. But in that process, it communicates something very insightful about what's going on in Ahab's soul. And what you should realize is that what's going on with Ahab goes on with you goes on with me. We're not very different from Ahab in terms of the dynamics that are taking place in this particular episode. Uh, Ahab, if you recall, was the evil king of the northern kingdom, and this enemy that he faces in this chapter, the real enemy, is the same enemy that you and I face on a day-to-day basis, just as I remember the initial question, what is the greatest enemy that you face in your spiritual life. Now, the Scripture generally categorizes our, our uh, enemies in three ways. The first is the world. The second is the flesh. And the third is the devil. Now, this is just a broad summary of the information that's in the Scripture. But what do we mean by each of these terms? Because what I'm talking about when we answer the question, what's the greatest enemy you face in your spiritual life, has to do with one aspect of one of these. And so we have to understand these. Now, some people try to blame the world for all their problems. That's their environment. This is people who want to say that if I just were born with money or if I were born to better parents or if I were born in a place where I had more opportunity or whatever the circumstances might be, then my life would be better. In other words, they're, just, they're blaming their circumstances, their environment for their, for their own failure rather than taking responsibility for it. There's others, and this is popular in some churches and some uh, Christian groups, to blame the devil. It's always a problem with the devil, and we need to cast out the devil. We need to do this thing. We need to do that thing. And so we have these groups that are all, always blaming the devil. You know, Flip Wilson back in the 70s caricatured this as the devil made me do it. And so there are various groups who try to blame the devil or some demon for the reasons they have whatever problems it is that they have. They have a uh, spirit of, of, of uh, lust or they have a spirit of greed or they have a spirit of anger and because this demon then they interpret spirit as some demon and so because they have that that's why they have problems in these areas it's not really their fault it's just some other uh, external thing so we have the world 
uh, let's define each of these. The world is that system of thought. The Bible talks about the fact that there is, that we are not to be conformed to the world. This is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. It's a mental thing. Uh, the, it's a system of thought that was originally pioneered by Satan, and it's characterized by two things, autonomy and antagonism. So if you just can remember those two uh, A words, uh, you've got it, autonomy and antagonism. Autonomy means independence from God. We're going to make it work on our own, and we don't really need God's help. We can figure it out uh, very well. Thank you very much. And it is always joined by either an explicit or an implicit antagonism or hatred or hostility uh, toward God. And this is manifested in many different types of thinking that we have in human history that uh, express themselves in various philosophies and various religious systems that seek to solve man's problems and to uh, find success and happiness and prosperity apart from God. So that's the external, one external aspect is the world system, and it manifests itself in different ways. In the ancient kingdom of Israel, you had the prosperity uh, theology of the fertility religions, of the worship of the Baals and the Asherah, and this was brought into the northern kingdom through Ahab and Jezebel. Then the second category is the flesh. That's just a term for this, the Bible uses for the sin nature. It refers to that internal corrupt nature that mankind has inherited from Adam because of his original sin. So the flesh is the internal corrupt nature of man that is committed to autonomy and antagonism. That's the whole orientation of the sin nature is I can make life work apart from God. It's based on arrogance and independence, uh, hence autonomy, and it is hostile to God. That's its orientation. So the flesh is also that is that internal aspect of man that has an affinity for the thought system of the world. And the thought system of the world came from Satan, who is the pioneer of all of this type of thinking. He was the highest of God's intelligent creation, the highest of all of God's angels who pioneered. He was the first to assert his independence from God, his autonomy, and his antagonism to God's plan. So if you notice, there's a thread running through here of these two ideas of autonomy and antagonism. On the one hand, the assertion that the creature can live and find happiness and meaning in life without being obedient to God as the ultimate authority in life, and we always run into problems, and we always create problems, and because we really can't make it work independently from God, we get frustrated and angry, and this generates an antagonism towards God that sometimes is camouflaged by various uh, religions, and it can be even camouflaged in our own life by our own uh, religious activity. We can become be very involved in a local church, but we're not letting the Word of God really change the way we think, and we're always judging the Word of God on the basis of whatever we think works for us, and that's just a sin nature uh, orientation that rejects the authority of God. So we have these three enemies, and we will see that how they work together in this particular uh, in this particular chapter. So let's look at First Kings chapter. 
uh, uh, 22. But before we get there, I have one other little diagram. When we ask the question, when I ask the question, what's driving your, what is the greatest enemy that you face in your spiritual life? You, I'm talking about what's really driving your nature at its very core. And so I have an illustration from a car engine. What really drives a car's engine? Well, you can take a look at an engine, and here's a little diagram, and this is what you'd see if you popped the hood of your car and you looked inside of it and you saw that the engine block and everything that's there, but you don't really see what is driving the engine. And what's inside that's driving the engine are these pistons in the cylinder block that are all enclosed, and as gas comes into those cylinders and there's an ignition, that gas explodes and it pushes the pistons through the cylinder as they go up and down it creates that cycle that uh, drives the uh, driving mechanism that moves the engine or whatever forward. And so this is hidden from sight. And what I'm getting at this morning is let's kind of peel back the layers, the camouflage that we have, that we generate from our own sin nature to take a look at what's really under the hood, what's hiding in your soul and in, in your sin nature that is pushing you uh, in ways that create failure in your spiritual life. So we're going to talk about the sin nature, and some of you are familiar with this diagram. I haven't used it in a while, but we have a diagram here, this black triangle, which doesn't show up real well, is the sin nature. And the sin nature uh, is driven at its very core by lust. Lust drives us in one direction or another. Uh, and also produces certain kinds of acts, and some of these acts are good acts, relative good and so we identify this as the area of strength. This is human good. Even Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, anybody can do relative good, but is it the kind of good, absolute good that God requires, which is absolute righteousness? No, it's not. It's simply good in terms of a relative standard, but not in terms of an absolute standard. And because man can never perform the kind of good that God requires, this is why God sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. So that because Jesus, who was qualified to go to the cross, because he paid that penalty, his righteousness then is available to anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for their sins, so that his righteousness becomes imputed or granted to us when we trust in Christ as Savior. So it's not our good that qualifies us for salvation. It is Christ's righteousness. So the other end of the uh, sin nature is the area of weakness. This produces personal sins in terms of sins of the tongue, overt sins, and mental attitude sins. Now, the lust pattern pushes us in one of two directions. In one direction, we move towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism is the idea that somehow I can give up things and it will impress God. Somehow I need to pursue a measure of personal holiness in a way that that is going to uh, gain God's approval. Now, there's nothing wrong with, and it's important for believers to live a life that is consistent with the mandates of Scripture, but if we do that thinking that's the basis for our relationship with him, then that goes into asceticism and 
and legalism, and this can lead to a moral degeneracy. And that's what we saw exhibited by the Pharisees in the Old Testament. These were very moral people. We tend to look at the Pharisees through the lens of their conflict with with Christ. But in that day and age, these were, uh, apart from Jesus or before Jesus, they would be considered the cultural good guys. They were moral. They were ethical. They were religious. They were always going to the temple to pray. They were giving. It was all overt, but there was no it was it, there was no spiritual reality or relationship with God. So that's a, a moral degeneracy. Normally we think of degeneracy as immoral, but there is a moral type of degeneracy. And you see this exhibited in various uh, uh, legalistic, fundamentalist, religious groups. Then on the, to the other extreme, we have licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. Uh, this leads to immoral degeneracy. Now, remember, what did I say? The, that the two characteristics of the cosmic system and the sin nature and Satan's original sin are autonomy and antagonism to God. So with these trends, what we're trying to do is assert our independence, and either through asceticism, legalism, some sort of moral code or religious system, we're going to make life work, or we're just going to do whatever we want to do. That's uh, also autonomy. We don't care if there are any absolutes or moral absolutes. We're going to do uh, whatever we want to do, and that leads to immoral degeneracy. So this is an expression of our own uh, autonomy. And in asceticism and legalism, that autonomy is often masked or camouflaged through some sort of stealth system of religious activity so that we're, we're convinced ourselves that, that we're okay with God, we're really doing things right, and yet at the very core we're still committed to our own agenda and our own autonomy. So this kind of gives us an overview of the sin nature, but what lies behind that lust pattern is something that's even more insidious, and that's arrogance. In the past, I've taught about the arrogant skills, and they really produce a cycle. This is when we look, we open the hood, we look at the engine, that's the sin nature. Now we open up the engine, and we're looking at the, at the cylinders, and we're seeing the pistons that are really driving the engine, which is the, the sin nature. And these arrogant skills, there's just five different ways in which we express our autonomy, begin with self-absorption. We all come right out of the womb self-absorbed. And from the very minute that we take that first breath and we start screaming to be fed or to be comfortable or to be warm or to be cold or whatever, probably warm because those operating rooms in hospitals are very cold, uh, we're just absorbed with ourselves, our own needs, and it's all about me, 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 me. But then as you grow, you become very sophisticated by the time you're two or three years old, and you begin to learn ways in order to camouflage that selfishness because it, it becomes apparent that that's not always the best way to do things, and, and uh, some people never learn that because they're just spoiled. And so there's that, always that orientation that just self-absorbed. It's all about me. But what the Bible is saying is it's not all about you. It's all about God. 
And so we have to go through a major reorientation of our thinking once we're a believer. Well, self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. We just give in to every uh, every desire that we have with no, no self-discipline whatsoever. That's more on the uh, licentious side of it. But it's also true in the arrogant, ascetic, legalistic side. And that leads to self-justification and self-deception. And in self-deception, we have managed to create a, a, <clears throat> a stealth bomber out of our sin nature so that we have ca- so camouflaged our own agenda that now it is dripping with Bible verses, and we've figured out how to uh, camouflage all of this in front of our spouses and family and, and friends, and yet we're still uh, completely... Um, off base spiritually, or if you're going the other route in self in uh, licentiousness, you just don't care. You're just doing whatever you want to, and you don't you don't care. You're just letting it all hang out, and this leads to self deification, which is what the Bible talks about. Is we're basically worshiping ourselves rather than God. We have placed ourselves on the throne in heaven. We're the ones who are in charge, not God. So it boils down to an authority issue. The bottom line in the sin nature is an authority issue. Are you going to submit to the Word of God when it tells you this is the way life is, or are you going to say, you know, I'm really not comfortable with that. I would rather do X or Y. I'm happier when I'm living this way or that way, and so I'm just going to ignore that particular page in Scripture so you take out your mental scalpel and surgically remove those verses from Scripture, rather than saying, well, this is what God says, and so I need to submit to that. In, in arrogance, that, that self-deception, uh, con- you have convinced yourself that your way is the right way, and that's not really what the Bible says or what the Bible means. So we have these arrogant skills. Let me move on past that slide. We have these arrogant skills. And these become uh, uh, exhibited in our life. And these are really spiritual landmines we create in our own soul. And what happens is sooner or later the pressures of life come and these landmines start exploding. And you wonder what in the world happened to your, your spiritual life. And what you don't realize is that you allowed yourself to live in a comfort zone of self-deception for so many years that you blinded yourself to your own sin nature and your own trends and what that was doing in terms of autonomy and opposition to God. And that's what's happened with, with Ahab. Now let's look at the beginning of this chapter. The events in this chapter are pretty simple. So we have to understand what's going on here in terms of, a, of this spiritual framework because it goes to the very core of the events in the chapter. Starts off, now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Now this goes back to uh, the events in chapter 20 where uh, Ahab had been in uh, a war with uh, Ben-Hadad II, and who was the ruler of Syria. And in fact, the, all of this conflict that occurs in uh, this time period when Ahab uh, was king in the conflict with Syria, which was known as the Arameans at that time, 
is based on an event that occurred earlier under King Asa of Judah. Now, we covered this in 1 Corinthians 15, 18 through 20. really gives us the core of it. Asa was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was, uh, he was one of the good kings, and he uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed idolatry. He cut down an obscene Asherah idol that his grandmother had uh, set up in Judah. But the scripture says, though he did not totally remove the high places in the southern kingdom, he was pronounced loyal to God. But during his reign, he was uh, threatened, felt threatened militarily by the northern kingdom as they were uh, pushing down towards the southern borders of the northern kingdom towards Judah. And so he decided to create a diversion for them and distract them by paying off the Syrians to attack the northern kingdom from the north. And so in verse 18 we read that Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, it's an enormous amount of money, and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon. Uh, This would be Ben-Hadad I, the father of the uh, Ben-Hadad of chapter 20. Uh, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, the king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad headed, uh, heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked uh, Ijon, Dan, Abelbeth, uh, Abel and all Kinneroth which, with all the land of Naphtali. Now, those terms describe the general area in, that I have in the circle there. You can see that the sort of brown or tan shaded area uh, just to the uh, left there over here, this area is the tribal allotment to the tribe of Naphtali. Syria is up here to the northwest, so they came down and took out this area, which goes down here. This is currently the Golan, so this this fighting over the Golan Heights, the higher ground to the east of the Sea of Galilee, has been going on for centuries, and this fight between over this territory from, between Syria uh, and Israel. And so they took control, or the Arameans, the Syrians, took control of this territory up here to the north, and it is still under their control until this was... Uh, take, much of it was taken back and captured by Ahab in chapter 20. So since that battle, three years has gone by but, and without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Now Jehoshaphat is the son and heir to Asa, who was the one who originally bribed the northern, uh, I mean, who originally bribed the Syrians to attack the northern kingdom. And so Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah in the south, and he is a good king, and he is uh, a believer, and he's positive to God, but he's going to create a major mistake here by entering into an alliance with uh, Ahab in the north. This violates a principle that goes through Scripture that the unbeliever has no uh, fellowship with the believer. This is one of the most important principles, and I see so many Christians violate this through what they think is missionary dating, 
and this is one of the most dangerous things that uh, young people or single people can get involved in is thinking that they can go out and uh, develop relationships with unbelievers and not have that develop into some sort of romantic entanglement. And when the other person is an unbeliever, then this can create tremendous problems down the road. So you just don't ever start by making that mistake. And over many years, I have seen too many believers wreck their spiritual life because they fail uh, in this this particular principle. So Jehoshaphat is going to make a major mistake here by allying himself with Ahab in the north. Verse 3, we read, And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that uh, Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of Syria. Now, Ramoth-Gilead, we're not absolutely sure where where it is located. It's down here in the Transjordan area, part of what had uh, originally belonged to uh, uh, Manasseh. It's not too far from Jerash. Those who've gone over to Jordan have visited the remains of the uh, later city, uh, the Roman city Jerash. It was about five miles from Jerash in that uh, in that territory, somewhere in that that circle. Those who uh, drew this particular map have Ramoth Gilead located further east than most maps put it, but that's the general area. So you see that this area uh, uh, and the Transjordan, the area of the Golan Heights, was still under Syrians. Syria's control, and so Ahab knows that this is their territory, and he wants to go get it. So he says, Jehoshaphat, you go with me, call out the troops, and we'll go, and we'll take back Ramoth-Gilead. And so Jehoshaphat replied and said to him, I'm as you are, my people is your people, my horses is your, your horses, we'll uh, pull the army together and um, and go take it back. But first Jehoshaphat said, I think that we need to inquire of the Lord. See, Jehoshaphat is a believer. He understands the importance of doing that which is God's will. And so he probably really irritated Ahab at this point by saying, you know, we need to listen to what God has to say. And that's the last thing Ahab wants to do because in his sin nature, he is committed to what? Think categorically here in terms of the diagram. He's committed to licentiousness because that's part of the whole uh, sexual immorality of the fertility cult. So he's operating on licentiousness, which is the expression of his autonomy. He's independent from God. He doesn't want to pay attention to what God wants to do at all. And his antagonism to God. Remember, he's the one who was, he and Jezebel were out persecuting all of the prophets of God, and they even had their uh, murder squads out trying to kill all of the, all of the prophets of God earlier, and we studied that back in chapter 18. So Jehoshaphat shows that he is what? He is not acting in autonomy. And he is not hostile to God. He is trying to be obedient to God. Verse 6, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. Now, these are not the false prophets of the Baals and the Asherah. Asherah. These are the false prophets of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they're not the, the... Most of the false prophets of Baal and Asherah were killed by Elijah in chapter 18. And they were executed because that was what the law demanded. Now here we have the false prophets of Yahweh. And so 
the king of Israel gathers all of his yes-men together. See, this is one of the big dangers with anybody in authority is they gather a bunch of sycophants around them who just tell them what they want to hear. But it doesn't just apply to leaders. It applies to you and to me. And we get involved. We're reading the Bible, and we say, you know, it looks to me like the Bible says I ought to do X. But wait a minute. I don't want to do X. I'm not comfortable there. Well, let me go find some commentary somewhere and somebody who's going to interpret the Bible in a way I can live with. I, I, you know, I don't care what the pastor says. I don't care what good, solid uh, exegesis may say. I'm going to, I'm not comfortable with that. And we live in a world today where there are thousands of books out there, thousands of quote, Christian theologies out there, and anything you want to justify, you can go find a hundred commentaries that will justify whatever position that is. But that doesn't mean it's right, and that doesn't mean it's biblical. It just feeds your own self-deception and your own arrogance, because in different areas we all look at passages in Scripture and say, they can't really mean what that says, because... That's not comfortable for me. And so we want to assert our own authority rather than the authority of, uh, the authority of scripture. You know, this really comes to play in a lot of things related to the family. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, you know, that really can't mean what it says. The illustration there is that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for the church. Well, I have too many things that I want to do in life, and if I have to uh, subordinate those in some way to demonstrate my love for my wife, I'll just never get those done. So that's got to mean something a little different. Then on the wife's side, it's, well, you're supposed to be uh, submissive to your husband, to obey your husband as the Lord. And so that gets a little tough sometimes when your husband asks you to do this and do that. It's not destructive. It's not demeaning. It's not uh, sin. And you say, you know, I really don't want to do that. Well, the Bible doesn't give you that option. It says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Well, my parents are real losers. My parents are pagan. My parents are unbelievers. My parents want me to do things I don't want to do. Well, the Bible didn't say honor your parents when you think they're right. It didn't say honor your parents when uh, you agree with them. It says honor your parents. And so you do uh, willingly, happily, joyfully what they want you to do because they are the authority. Oops, there's that word again. See, that's the basic problem is that little sin nature, lust pattern, that those arrogant skills boil down to authority. And your and my sin nature are so oriented to self-absorption that we want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to submit to any other authority, especially the authority of the Bible or the authority of God. So we find ways to rationalize and justify uh, disobedience in these different spheres of authority, which is exactly what's going on with Ahab. He is completely out of line as a king of Israel and wants to be his own, uh, his own authority. So Joshaphat now has really uh, irritated him by calling for a prophet. And so the king of Israel gathered all these prophets, and 400 of them come forward. And he asked them, he says, Shall I go to Ramoth-Gilead to fight? This is in the middle of verse 6. Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, as a corporate group, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand 
of the king. So there are a bunch of yes men. They tell him exactly what he wants to hear, and he's so happy because he has managed to justify it. Now, does he know these are a bunch of sycophantic yes men? He does. He, you know, at, at his core, he is, he is not, a, he knows they're not like Elijah. And he knows they're not like Micaiah, who's going to show up in a few verses. But he's managed to desensitize his soul to his own uh, sin nature trends and to rationalize and justify his disobedience. So, but Jehoshaphat has discernment. And Jehoshaphat hears them, and he, he says, wait a minute, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here? He immediately recognizes these are a bunch of false prophets. And so he says, isn't there a real prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, oh, yes, you can just hear the tone of his voice. There's this one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. What's going on here? Autonomy and antagonism. I hate him. I want to be independent of God, and he doesn't want me to be, so I hate him. I'm hostile to him. So I hate him because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. But Jehoshaphat said, don't say such things. I mean, let not the king say He recognizes this as blasphemy. So in verse 9, the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah. Uh, here quickly in verse 10, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat put on their robes. This is a state occasion. The prophet, the spokesman of God is coming, and so they're not going to put, off their, put on their cutoffs and sandals. They're going to put on their uh, finest uh, robes and clothes and marks of their office and sit on their throne uh, at the threshing floor at the gate of Samaria. This is where business was conducted in the ancient world at the city gates. This was where <clears throat> judgments were rendered. This is where the city council met. And so they all come together in this uh, great affair of state. And all the false prophets are there and prophesying before them and saying that, yes, go ahead, fight the battle. God's on your side trying to convince uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, that they are the ones truly speaking for God. And this one uh, false prophet, who's one of their leaders, Zedekiah, comes out, and he had made horns of iron. Uh, horns depicted power uh, in the ancient world, and he's, he's going to give a little show and tell here, a little uh, uh, image uh, lesson here. And he pulls out these horns, and he says, This is what the Lord says, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So he is completely uh, self-deceived that he is speaking for God and is continuing to promote his, his false teaching, his false interpretation of of uh, Scripture, but Ahab's a willing listener. He wants to be deceived because he wants to do what he wants to do, just like lots of Christians do. They, real, they, they want to have the veneer of Christianity. They want to be with people who believe the right thing. They want to listen to a pastor who basically believes in the Bible and thinks generally like they do. But let's not step on anybody's toes and let's not really get into uh, any of the details of how I conduct my life. I basically want to keep God at a distance, but I want to have a, a cloak of, of uh, spirituality that, that deceives me and deceives others. So, all the prophets continue to prophesy that they can have victory, and this messenger eventually brings Micaiah to them 
And when he goes to Micaiah, he says, now, look at verse 13. Now, listen, the words of the prophets with one, everybody else said this is okay. You know, why don't you just relax, Micaiah, and just tell the king what he wants to hear? Uh, but Micaiah says, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Is that autonomy? No, that is dependence on the Lord. He recognizes God's the authority, and he is completely submitted to God's authority and saying what God wants him to say, no matter what the other circumstances might be. So he comes to the king. They bring him in before Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And Ahab inquires of him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And Micaiah, Micaiah must have been very relaxed. Here he is surrounded by these 400 false prophets, and he's surrounded, and there he is with all the pomp and circumstance of the throne room, and he's going to be sarcastic. You've got to really respect him for this, and he's just going to play right into their, uh, act like he's playing their game. And so he says to Ahab, uh, go and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Ahab knows exactly what's going on. And now, I don't know about some of you, but but some of you husbands recognize this. You know that you get in a discussion with your wife about a certain course of action, and your wife says, okay, we'll do it your way. And you know when you hear that tone of voice that what that means is that if you try to do what you want to do, you're in trouble for days. And that's what's happened here is is... Ahab knows that tone of voice, and he says, Okay, how many times do I have to make you swear that you will tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? This from the mouth of Ahab, that you're going to tell me the truth in the name of the Lord? So you've got to understand, in this weird little scenario that we're getting ready to see, that the issue isn't that he that he gets deceived somehow into going into this battle. He knows from the beginning what the truth is, but he doesn't want it. He wants to do what he wants to do on his terms, no matter what the consequences may be, because the basic orientation of arrogance is irrational. So, uh, Micaiah says, I saw, verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains of sheep that have no shepherd. They're just lost. They're scattered. Their shepherd's gone. And the Lord says, these have no master. Let each one return to his house in peace. This is basically Ahab is hearing, okay, I'm going to be killed. And that's right, because in the last chapter and the chapter before, God had announced the fact that it would not be long before Ahab would be killed. And that that was his judgment from God because of his disobedience. Verse 18, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he wouldn't prophesy good concerning me? This is, you know, this is like a conversation from another uh, another world, like you've walked through the looking glass or something. On one hand, he's ordering the prophet to tell him the absolute truth that God has revealed to him. And then when he does, he says, well, didn't I tell you you were just going to tell me something bad? And so Micaiah then said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. Now, this is where we see the curtain draw back and we see what goes on in the heavenly councils of God. 
The host of heaven is a term that refers to all of the angels, both the holy angels and the fallen angels, those who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. We see the same kind of assembly before come before God in the first and second chapters of Job. And at that time, there's this large assembly, and God... Uh, says uh, to Satan, who's been going about the earth, uh, looking and examining all the believers on the earth, and God says, well, have you thought about my, my servant Job? And God, through his questions, is really moving Satan to a particular course of action in relationship to Job. That is the sovereignty of God. Evil is not truly autonomous. God is restricts evil, and he uses evil for his own purposes, not that he is the source of the evil because he is righteous, but he, through his sovereign will, controls evil so that it brings about the consequences and the judgments that he uh, desires. So the Lord is there in verse 20. The Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? Now some of your translations may say who will deceive Ahab. Uh, the word there in Hebrew is a word that means to open somebody up to something. It's the basic word patach, meaning to open or to deceive or to persuade someone. It says who, and he's, remember he's addressing the angels, the fallen angels and the elect angels. So we, we see that behind the overt physical scene of Jehoshaphat and Ahab, there's a spiritual reality where the affairs of human history are influenced by uh, the angels, both the holy angels and the demons, but all under the sovereign control of God. So this one spirit comes forward. Now, this would be a evil spirit, a demon comes forward and says, I'll volunteer, I'll be the one to persuade him. So the Lord says, well, how are you going to do that? And so in verse 22, the spirit says, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit. And the Hebrew word there, uh, secure, indicates uh, lying or deception. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail, go out and do so. Now, God is not the author of Ahab's deception. That's why I labored that before. Ahab wants to be deceived. Ahab, in the autonomy of his own sin nature, has already mired himself in self-deception, and he wants to be deceived. So God isn't the author of his deception. This is a way of reinforcing the deception and the rebellion in Ahab that is already already there. So, verse 23, therefore, look, the Lord has this is Micaiah speaking to uh, now to Jehoshaphat and Ahab, therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster upon you. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given through Elijah uh, back in the previous two chapters that Ahab was going to die the sin unto death, that Ahab would be judged and he would die. So verse 24, now there's opposition. 
Because whenever the person who's standing for the Bible and the truth speaks the truth, there's always, a, in, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 people who are going to tell him he's wrong and have very good scholarly academic arguments for why the Bible really teaches something else in order to justify everybody's uh, lack of uh, submission to God. So Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, comes forth, and he strikes Micaiah on the, on the cheek. He gets physically violent with him. That is hostility, antagonism to the word of God. People who want to do what they want to do just get downright violent with people who just simply, humbly say this is what God says to do. I mean, I I see more and more every year examples of people who just stand up and say, well, this is what the Bible says, and they're vilified. They're attacked. They're sometimes physically attacked. And you see people who just... Uh, become incredibly angry just because somebody says, well, the Bible says such and such is wrong. And they just go ballistic over it because they are, they convince themselves that they can get away with whatever they want to do. So Zedekiah just goes ballistic here, strikes Micaiah on the cheek, and says, which way did the Spirit from the Lord go for me to speak to you? You know, I'm the spokesman here, not you, Micaiah. And Micaiah says, well, you will see the truth on the day when you go into your inner chamber. This would be a hideout spot in his house because after Ahab gets killed and the army gets defeated by uh, Ben-Hadad of the Syrians, they're going to be pursuing everybody, and Zedekiah is going to be cowering in his uh, safety or secure room inside, in his panic room inside of his house. So the king of Israel then says, take Micaiah, oh, we're going to fix him, take him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and put him in prison, feed him with bread and water, make him suffer. That's why it's called the bread of affliction and the water of affliction, until I come back in peace. Ahab's going to survive. So Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken to me. And, of course, he's implying that the Lord has spoken to me and you won't return in peace. And so the result of this is they go to battle. Now, Ahab knows what's going on here, and he really understands because he's going to dress like he's a private soldier, sort of like Santa Ana did after the Battle of San Jacinto in order to uh, get away. He's going to dress like he's just a private soldier, and that's going to leave poor old Jehoshaphat hanging out there with all of the, his... Uh, royal regalia on so that when the armies of Ben-Hadad attack, they will, uh, they'll see all of the uh, troops, the bodyguards surrounding uh, Jehoshaphat, and they'll think that's Ahab. My friends like that, who needs enemies? So he describes all of this in verses, uh, verse 30, 31, and then when the attack comes, and that's described down in verses 32 to 34, uh, they, the, the Syrians think that Jehoshaphat is the king, and they all fight against him, and that becomes the hot spot of the battle until suddenly Jehoshaphat cried out something. We don't know what, probably like, you know, onward troops of Judah or called upon the name of the Lord, something which obviously meant that he wasn't Ahab, and the Syrians realized that they uh, were attacking the wrong place. And then in verse 34 we read, Now a certain man drew a bow at random. Ah, 
But there's no such thing as chance in the plan of God. When those things happen in your life that you don't expect, it's not random. It's not just some accidental circumstance. God is the one who is trying to get your attention and is taking you through a training session. But in this particular uh, verse, it's not a training session. It is the execution of God's judgment. And so this one soldier on the Syrian side draws his uh, bow, pulls back the arrow, just shoots it randomly into the uh, mass of, uh, of Jewish soldiers, and God guides it right into the chink of the armor of the king of Israel. And it it is a fatal wound, and Ahab knows that. He tells his chariot driver to take him out of battle, and as the battle continues throughout the day, he is bleeding to death and dying, and the blood runs out of his wound onto the floor of the chariot. It's just a bloody mess, and it's everywhere, and they take him back to uh, back to Samaria. And the army scatters, and they're left without a leader, and the Syrians have uh, had victory. So as they come back into Samaria, someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, which is exactly what the prophecy was back in chapter 20, that there, the blood of Ahab and Jezebel would be licked up uh, by, by the dogs. And so you see, no one gets away with evil. No one gets away with sin. Uh, the unbeliever doesn't. There's either going to be judgment now or judgment later, but you don't get away with it either. You don't get away with it when, no matter how much you want to cover it up with your self-deception and your arrogance, no matter how much you want to uh, not deal with issues of uh, authority orientation towards God in your own life. You can't get away with it. Ultimately, it is going to come back, and it is going to devastate your spiritual life. Now, you may manage to uh, stay within your comfort zone for a while, years, decades, but sooner or later, if you are not submitting to God's word and doing things God's way, then what is going to happen is your life is going to explode all over you and all over everyone around you. Some event, some circumstance, uh, it may be the death of a loved one, it may be the loss of a job, it may be the collapse of the stock market and the loss of your 401K, it may be cancer, it may be some other disease, uh, it could be any number of things and all of a sudden your life is just going to implode because you have basically eviscerated your spiritual life of any reality because you've been operating on self-deception for years. And that is the greatest danger that we all face. It's arrogance, but it is the most subtle type of arrogance. It is that arrogance that has justified our disobedience and camouflaged it and wrapped it in the robes of righteousness, and underneath there's nothing. And so that's a challenge for us, is that we dare not be like an Ahab who is hostile to the Word of God. And it may just be this verse over here or that verse over there, but if it starts off being one, it will quickly multiply, and it will become a dozen and then a hundred, and then eventually the house of cards collapses. But it's never too late. The grace of God is always extended to us, and there's always the opportunity to uh, confess our sins, to recover, and to grow and go forward. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to let the Holy Spirit honestly 
challenge us in terms of our own spiritual life and in terms of our own spiritual growth and not say, well, that really doesn't apply to me or the Bible really can't mean that or that's just not the way I'm, I want to do things or I'm not really comfortable with that. We have to submit to the Word of God, which means we have to uh, let the Holy Spirit deal with us in every single area of our life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things today, to take these events that occurred uh, several thousand years ago and look at them in terms of the personal dynamics that are going on within Ahab as an unbeliever and just to see that as a pattern that is true not only for unbelievers but also for believers as we so often are just mired in our own self-absorption, our own self-deception, and we are not willing to submit to your authority. But, Father, we need to be challenged in these areas, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who does that, and we pray that we would be responsive to his teaching as he applies what we studied this morning to our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would take this time to make that both sure and certain for them. Jesus Christ died on the cross for every sin in history. He died on the cross for every single sin you've committed. They are all forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. But the issue is that you have to accept that. You have to trust in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in him and what he did on the cross for your salvation. The instant you do so, you become a new creature in Christ, the Scripture says. You have eternal life. Those sins are experientially forgiven, and there is no basis for guilt. There's no basis for failure, and you are a child of God forever and ever that can never be lost. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.